All right. I'm really excited for today's show. There are some shows where it's like you do the work, you get ready. Then there are some shows that you know you're going to be learning some really good information off of. So what is up, everyone? Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another phenomenal episode of Untold Stories, where together, you, the listeners and watchers, me and the guests, we get to dive deep in that rabbit hole together. We get to figure out what the hell's going on, how we got started, where we are right now, where we're going in the future to truly kind of like wrap our heads around this whole new uh, paradigm and socioeconomic experiment and like societal shift change. And we, we weave a nuanced narrative together uh, through the people that I meet along the way, the friends that I've made, those brilliant, brilliant minds, my guest today, for example, and, and we come out of it uh, a lot smarter from every episode. And I just want to take another opportunity and thank you guys, my listeners. Uh, I'm a little under the weather this morning, so please bear with me. But, um, and I have a great guest who's going to be doing most of the talking today. I'm just joking. You know, we, we talk together. But um, I really want to thank you guys. Uh, we're celebrating uh, almost a three-year anniversary of Untold Stories. So, like, thank you guys for giving me such a purpose. And, and Jason, Brett, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories. Thank you for having me, Charlie. It's an honor. So right before the, the show, you were talking about uh, a tweet that I posted just now, which showed me, Eric Voorhees, uh, and Roger Veer uh, in front of like a little, little like lamppost that said Bitcoin on it. And right behind us is this mega big PayPal booth. And just to give a little bit of background of that story, that was money 2020, but it was in 2013. So the idea was they launched this big conference called money 2020 in 2013. And that was, I think, Bitcoin's really big coming out into the traditional financial world. And we were running BitInstant at the time, me, Eric, and Roger. And this Money 2020 conference was in Las Vegas, and they just wanted copious amounts of money for a booth. And we said, I mean, we're Bitcoiners. We weren't, you didn't have much money. Bitcoin was worth maybe like two, three dollars at the time. I think we paid like a thousand Bitcoin for that, for that little lamp post. And we didn't even sponsor our company. We didn't write BitInstant. We just wrote Bitcoin. It's like, what other people spend like, like their entire marketing budget for the year to get like a little post in a big conference just to have the word Bitcoin, not even your company. In hindsight, we should have at least had like powered by BitInstant or something like that. Yeah, that, that's, uh, it's really remarkable. It's funny that I noticed it too, because as you know, I'm in sort of the political and lobbying sphere in Washington, D.C., and a good friend of mine, Jesse Spiro, actually just took over the role at PayPal as their head of crypto policy. Um, so I'll have to send him that tweet. Oh, my God. Say, you knew I'd about love to have story. him on the show. Oh, yeah. absolutely. It's really interesting. He, he actually was uh, at the ground floor of Chainalysis and just was in the head of policy for Chainalysis for, for a few years and just recently moved over to PayPal. So he would be he would be great. He would he would love to come on. So, so you could you could say that like. PayPal has been infected with the the Bitcoin and crypto virus. Now we've it's almost become like Venmo, which is owned by PayPal, almost become like another crypto company. Yes, yes. I mean, when you look at uh, PayPal and then you look at uh, Cash App that sponsored the Bitcoin conference in Miami, um, you know, you have these traditional, I say traditional, you know, traditional uh, digital lines of payment that are now adopting and realizing that Bitcoin has to be part of the picture. It's pretty remarkable. It, it, it really is. Um, so I want to give everyone a little bit of background on you. You have extension, extensive research. Uh, uh, you have extensive experience. You've done a lot of research with blockchain and crypto and Bitcoin. 
You've made presentations to several U.S. government agencies, uh, regulatory bodies. You're currently the founder and CEO of Value Technology Foundation, which is a D.C. nonprofit think tank dedicated to blockchain advocacy, education, research and development. Uh, you were the director of operations for the for the Digital Chamber of Commerce, uh, Perry Ann's project, which is amazing. Like she was like also an OG of Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, you were a policy director uh, for Consensus. So you got to work alongside Joe Lubin. Wow, you got to work at some cool companies like so far and, and Bitcoin is less than 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really, really privileged. It's it's amazing having, I met Perry Ann at this, one of her dinners that she did and uh, I just fell into that role, and and what a great start she offered me. And the, the digital chamber is still still rolling along really strong. Um, and you know, and before all that, obviously, I was a federal regulator at the FDIC during the financial crisis. So I have a really interesting view of the world because I sort of saw when 08 and 09 started happening. I was there sort of as a quantitative analysis for all the banks that were failing, like AIG and and, and Bank of America. And so I sort of got to see the fiat system kind of crumble as, as Bitcoin was just beginning, which I knew nothing about until I, I joined up with Perry Ann in, in 16. A lot of people are comparing the 2008-2009 to now uh, and where we're going. And actually, if you look like every 10 years, there's always something 2001 and 2009, right? And then now 2020, it's always around that same. And then 1989-1990 was around the time that I was born. The, the 70, early 70s, like every decade, there seems to be some like shift or or change in like human behavior or how our, our countries run or like how we all have relationships with each other but this time is different because we have we have crypto it's it's really interesting we have a way to like protect our sovereignty this time you know if you can if right now right like it, it, i kind of war game this in my head if right now we could pass any we had let's just say we had like uh, a very bitcoin and crypto friendly congress and president, and we had the once in a lifetime ability to pass a like a nonpartisan bill. What would you want to see in that? Wow, that's such a great question, and you just made my day because I've given this a lot of thought, and I feel like I have kind of the answer for this, which is it would involve the states too. But I do think that we need a constitutional amendment for Bitcoin, and that sounds really you know grandiose and large. But it's if I can explain, it's it's Bitcoin is rooted in elements, like you just said, of sovereignty. It's also rooted in the notion of privacy uh, and, and our ability to transact. And uh, at this point, I think that we have to be able to recognize the rights of individuals to hold digital assets, with Bitcoin being the first one, um, so that it's not something that can easily be taken away. Because at some point or another, you might see uh, you know, and I'm not even talking about a ban. I'm saying just crackdowns, right? Whether it's you know AML laws or or FinCEN or whatever it is, there needs to be you know I would say a, a constitutional protection about our abilities to enjoy this new asset class and understand how it works, and also recognize that it's not like it's in competition with the U.S. dollar or anything, but just something that can coexist. Because otherwise, I think it'll just continually be attacked. And I think that it'll continue. We need to preserve the United States, in my mind, as the place to live, to enjoy Bitcoin and other crypto assets. So I, was I think actually, that I was actually just saying yesterday how grateful I am to be an American, especially where we are in the world today. Um, and I'm just very grateful to even to even live in the where we, you know, like just 
down here in Florida, but just live in a, in a beautiful place working in an, in an industry with uh, a lot of uh, unbelievable people. But you hit on something very interesting. Uh, and that reminded me of what I read yesterday. There's this big push to actually change the name of hardware wallets to signing devices because crypto is actually freedom of speech. Yep, absolutely. Um, and that's where the First Amendment comes in. And I, I really agree with this notion that we have the ability to code and um, nothing should ever interfere with that. And you've seen in the last administration with the Trump administration and then with the, the Biden administration too. So it really doesn't matter, you know, Republican or Democrat. It, it feels like the, the Attorney General's Office, Department of Justice is focused very much on breaking encryption, right? And um, that's a very dangerous road to go down because that's like saying, hey, let's figure out how we can break into people's houses, like without them knowing it. You know, at some point or another, there has to be places where the U.S. government doesn't have to get into or they can get into through normal processes of, of, of court orders and things due process. like that. Yeah, due process. And so, you know, we don't um, we shouldn't be focused on breaking encryption of our own, you know, this is something where I feel like we have Department of Defense and my dad who was in the Vietnam War was focused on, you know, breaking the encryption of, you know, our enemies, like not not something where we try to do it to ourselves. Wow. And there's this there's this huge like growing voting block now over the, especially over the last 5 years. I mean, let's let's kind of figure this out together. Because it's not it's not partisan. You're right. It's it's administration after administration. It seems like in every administration there's a group of people that that kind of wants to limit the the size of the industry and and kind of like temper the growth of it. And there's always that like group of people, and it's kind of that's what you're doing, right? You're out there teaching people, you're advocating for us. But don't they know that there's this beautiful nonpartisan voting block that they could tap into? Why don't you see more politics? I guess we do, right? We're starting to. We're starting to see uh, political action committees. And um, it's actually really nice. Patrick McHenry, who's a congressman in North Carolina, who is the ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee. Um, and, and in all probability, people are forecasting the Republicans will sort of take over in 2022, is going to, um, has said he's going to seek the chairmanship. So he's going to be chair of basically the most powerful you know, financial services committee in Congress. And Charlie, like if you look back and I can share it with you a couple of years ago, he was on CNBC lauding Bitcoin and he actually did podcasts where he tried to convince other congressmen and women about Bitcoin and what and the value of it. He 100 percent gets the sovereign nature of it. Um, and so, you know, we have people we're starting to convince. Yeah, but there's it's someone in the way. Yeah, it's it's there's there's obviously the other side of it of, of people who are reacting like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressman Brad Sherman, who make the headlines a lot because they sort of bash it. But uh, there's ones that just don't, they don't necessarily get that many headlines, but they are, they are friends of this industry and they recognize the innovation and they, they really have a lot of, of belief in. The one thing that seems to sides the Democrats and the Republicans, and what's, what's really interesting to me, Charlie, is how we've, uh, we, we started talking about this idea of a central bank digital currency, right? CBDC. And then a lot of people in Congress, and when you talk to them, started saying, well, wait a minute, we have to protect people's privacy. And then it was like full circle, like, well, we want to have some sort of currency, but we want to protect people's privacy. Yeah, It's like they went all the way back to Bitcoin and the idea of maybe we need something synonymous. And I was waiting for them to kind of 
circle back to that notion of, well, wait a minute, it's been right here all along. We just need to look to Bitcoin if we want this model where we can sort of have digital cash, but also protect people's privacy. I don't, I don't realistically see how, how governments could, well, you have nation states that like adopt Bitcoin and everything like that, but that's different because those kind of borrow money from the U.S. So there's almost an incentive to do so, but I can't see how the U.S. fits Bitcoin into some framework. It's just an uncontrollable entity. And like you said, it's freedom of speech. People will, will use, because it's not just like writing on a blog, which is freedom of speech, but it's using the power of, of money to, 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 to change. You look at what's going on with Ukraine, how much Bitcoin was raised for Ukraine. It's like things like that. So I, I don't know. How does that fit in? Again, it's such a good question. And I've been thinking as we've been talking, Charlie, like, what is it about Bitcoin that's so scary? Is it really? And, and I don't know what it I is. I don't know. Exactly, yeah. But it's this really, it literally, I mean, if you think about the possibility, right, of maybe us having Trump back in office in 2024. It's clear, like some of the things that he wanted. But one thing he was very clear about is he didn't like Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, and so it's like all these other views, but but Bitcoin is still scary. And I think it's, I think part of it is because you know, if you think about like telephones, you know, you have a choice in cable or your phone carrier. But with with this country, like there isn't really this. You have an option as to what kind of money you should use. Like it should be the U.S. dollar, and that's it. We're not really afforded other options. And I think that goes to history of the nation state and how much power the nation state derives from you know their own fiat currency what i don't think they expected to happen those in power whether republicans or democrats was that some geeks called satoshi nakamoto or <laughs> one or other people would get together and actually create an alternative system you know that people would buy into like I don't think that ever was fathomable by the government that someone would actually try to do something that would compete, you know, with fiat. And of course, Bitcoin has different uses now. People look at sort of store of value and other things, but but the the underlying threat, and, and you notice this because the posture changed. There was the paper from the Treasury Department on stable coins, and and I said this, like I sort of called stable coins yeah. as like stable coins are the new orange versus Bitcoin. Like they're worried about stable coins because that was really the threat, right? Because that sort of is a US dollar. And so I, I just don't think it was ever, ever conceived that something could actually compete with their own currency. And, and that's what I think has them on their heels. I think, I think there's, we're going to see a huge shift, right? We're going to, and this is, a, I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm also thinking, and let's, let's understand what Bitcoin and crypto is versus what modern money has been. Modern money has been almost this like uh, ledger system, but there's never been a way to exit that ledger. So if you if you got kicked out of one bank, they'd give you a check and you have to go to another bank. You, that check is, even if it's worth a million dollar cashier's check, if you are disenfranchised from the American financial system or even the global one, that's worthless, right? So there was, there was just going from one ledger to another. Now with Bitcoin and stable coins, and this is where they don't, I think there's like a big issue with grasping this, is that the the money becomes a a bare asset it's like you can hold it outside of the institution so it changes because it forces the institutions to compete for you i'd love to see an american dollar stablecoin i would that would be an, a really i was very against it like 5 6 years ago but i would love to see that i think 
a stable coin would take so many people that are disenfranchised, especially minority groups, people that are very poor living in places that we don't even know exist, and take them out of those poverty. Because the institutions where they're forced to keep their money are robbing them blind. That's right. That's right. And I think along those same lines, if we were to do that on the domestic front, we'd be helping those people who have been disenfranchised. But with uh, creating that U.S. dollar stable coin, it would actually accomplish a lot of the goals I think the government believes it can accomplish now with paper $100 bills, because I think it would be very popular internationally as well. Um, And and people are are shifting to digital. So it would make their job a lot easier, actually, to like maintain the balances across the world. But this is the thing we saw with how easy it was with with the U.S. freezing all of Russia's uh, uh, dollars kept in the U.S. And that was almost a shot across the bow to anyone holding dollars that disagrees with the U.S. government. So there needs to be some due process. And I don't know what this answer is. This is like something. And so the best answer I've got, actually, I don't want to tell you the best answer. I kind of want to hear your thoughts because that's what you do, right? You're out there trying to make sure that as laws are being passed, our rights are being preserved. Thank you for that. Oh, well, thanks, Charlie. And and it's, uh, it's, and you get to work with your wife too. It's like a whole team. It's amazing. I get to work with my wife too. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and she helps with, um, with Value Technology Foundation, we do uh, work where we we support different agencies and help with training on explaining what what blockchain is and what Bitcoin is. And I think um, the answer is is education. Um, and and what I'll, uh, the first contract we won for our nonprofit when I created it was uh, I actually bid with uh, suggesting that we do training on how Bitcoin mining works and that I wanted to buy a Bitcoin miner and. People thought I was crazy. Like the government would just throw me out, be like, we don't want to see this. Like it's, but, but I, I think trying to explain what it is so they can, you know, touch, see, and feel it and understand what exactly is happening is really important. Um, I, you know, I don't know. Well, actually, I think starting the answer is, and this is one thing I'm starting to look at um, almost as a business model is more and more using Bitcoin as a currency to help lobby politicians. Cause I think. The one thing that's clear in the country is it isn't just the, you know, the president. It isn't just the Congress. There's the lobbying influence of, of big tech. It's local politics, government. too. People forget about that. Mm-hmm. And so the, the opportunity to and, and, you know, Perry Ann did this brilliantly, the digital chamber where she offered everybody $50 in Bitcoin. Um, they could accept it or opt out of it. But what I mean is not so much like just sort of sharing with them, but, you know, putting large amounts of money in cryptocurrency that gets, you know, brought to politicians for campaign, you know, fundraising for, in, in a sense, I guess the way I like to think about it and what you're saying is, is in terms of the freedom you have with Bitcoin is when you choose to buy Bitcoin or hold it, it's kind of like you're voting, you're voting for this system. You know, it's, it's a vote <sighs> and, and I don't have to like, know. okay, Charlie Shrem, was there at the beginning with Roger Ver? Like I don't, ha- I can just know. I can look at the system. I can do my own research, and then I can make that vote, like an election. You know, like an informed consumer, and say I'm voting to be part of this system, and this is what I want. I think that that kind of goes back to what we were chatting about earlier. How Bitcoin, and largely, this is why NFT communities are so successful, right? Because the Bit- people looked at the Bitcoin community in the early days like this is an anarcho-capitalist community people around the world who never even saw each other, didn't even know each other's real names, 
but built an industry together that is here today. And a lot of these newer NFT projects are taking that and and forking different ideas. And I, I love them. It's like video games. And I'm like, I play Strange Clan and I play Warp Bond and I play all these different. I'm part of so many of these communities now. Most of them people never heard about. I'm not into the NFT projects that try to have major million dollar floors. I like to join the ones that uh, are really focusing on that community. But like you said, that's what it is. It doesn't matter who started it, when they started it. And going back to that, it is, it's a, it's a tool for freedom of speech and it's a tool for freedom. But you said something, you said something that really uh, stuck with me. It's the first thing you said on the show. You said about how this needs to be in the constitution. And just yesterday, there was a leak. I got an email, or just this morning, I got an email uh, that there was a leak in Politico that, there, that there's a potential overturn of Roe versus Wade. And I don't want to go into the politics of that, but the reason I'm bringing it up because a bunch of the chat groups that I'm in, people were saying, this needs to be enshrined in the Constitution. And then someone said, well, this needs to be state rights. And then someone said, well, the internet isn't enshrined, enshrined in the Constitution. But then I responded back and I said, but it is kind of, right? Like you have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and a bunch of other, the Bill of Rights and things like that. Uh, and that's kind of what the internet is. Why are we not attributing Bitcoin and crypto to that too then? Why do we need like another amendment? Yeah, you know, um, I think like it's funny, the similarities of like Bitcoin core and our constitution of our country and the democracy, like a lot of people are talking about sort of you know, BIP 119 and whether they like that or don't like that, it's very hard to change anything at the core, you know, Bitcoin, and that's, you know, by design. And I think that the constitution's the same way. And then once you have something a certain way, it's very, very hard that that's ever going to change. And so to me, that's, that's the beauty of like the amendment process, you know, for the constitution is it requires, you know, so many, you know, the states involved and Congress involved, and, and you're making the really the strongest statement possible about the way you feel about something, right? Like, we're not going to drink, you know, alcohol anymore in this country. Okay, we everyone can drink alcohol in this country. Yeah. And, and so, and that's what I think is important is to remember things like the 21st Amendment, because it doesn't have to be something that earth shattering or like, you know, people like when you place importance on things, the Roe v. Wade is obviously going to get huge amounts of discussion. You know, I saw the same, same thing. That's something that's like really going to capture the public discourse. But, you know, Bitcoin shouldn't just be dismissed because, well, maybe it's not important enough for a constitutional amendment. It's freedom of speech, like you said. And it's to me, it's the freedom of property, the property rights embedded in the Fourth Amendment, you know, due process um, and, and the ability for, for people to choose. I mean, we didn't have to do this in 1849 when we had the gold rush, right? We didn't have to say, um, hey, let's make sure we protect gold. But for whatever reason, Bitcoin is just, you know, continues to get that scrutiny where I think that ultimately for, for not just for Bitcoin, but for people, like you say, to be able to code yeah. and to be able to hold it, we need that protection. It's not for Bitcoin, but for the people holding Bitcoin. Okay. So a lot of people actually use the gold example as like people were holding gold and then I forget, like 74 or something like that or 73, uh, gold was banned. What, what actually happened there? Like what was going on? Can, can we talk about it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, if you go all the way back to the Great Depression, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did the uh, executive order uh, to pull gold um, from people and have them be stored at the banks and with the government. The reason he did that back then was he was concerned that gold was going to go overseas, that it was going to leave the United States. So that was his way of sort of making a foreign policy decision. And then, of course, 
gold, you know, was backed. He, he changed it to, you know, $21 an ounce. And then um, with, with Nixon, he literally went off the gold standard mm. to create pure fiat money, you know, in 1971. And you obviously hear that, you know, WTF happened in 1971 yeah. and all that. Um, but if you go all the way back to kind of where we are, you know, even President uh, John F. Kennedy talked about having a U.S. note. And if you go even a little bit further back to Abe Lincoln, Lincoln introduced, you know, greenbacks yeah. for the, what we have now. Uh, it wasn't called Federal Reserve notes. Now it's, it's from the Federal Reserve, right? It's not U.S. Treasury. They were like retail bonds to the government type things that you can use as money. Yeah. But when he did that, he didn't do it. It wasn't backed by gold at first. And so he actually said, he apologized almost to the American public saying, I'm sorry, I don't have gold and silver to offer you, but please take these, these notes of the government so we can restore. And, and, and that's really what we, where the idea of fiat originated, you know, it was a good purpose, but now this, this idea of anointing, you know, this particular green piece of paper is from the government uh, is what Bitcoin is realizing. It's sort of like the next generation uh, of money. Um, We're going through, we're going through this like massive uh, currency situation right now. The ruble, the euro, the the Japanese yen. You can stay in a five star resort for like a hundred dollars in Tokyo now. I just heard the dollar, the DXY is is pumping. It's the strongest probably it's been in a very 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 long time. Why do you think that is? And do you think it's because? Right, I love how I just ask a question and then I like a- <laughs> answer it. So. Yeah, please. <laughs> And I never got to tell you my thoughts, by the way. Remember, yes. I want to tell you my thoughts on that. But do you think that it's because of a, of a relationship between, like, do you see? Do you think it's because the U.S. is seen as a like the regulator or the policeman or the uh, one that's going to like bring Bitcoin to uh to to where it needs to be or bring crypto to like this where it needs to be? I don't really know. Understand my question. I'm not sure that um, the U.S. necessarily wants to promulgate. Bitcoin per se. Um, but for countries like Russia, and when you talk about the ruble and the impact of that, you'll see that it, it this is like this was inevitable, right? People, so what I always say to people about Bitcoin, and I love your take on this because I, I don't know if this is correct, but and and then I do want to hear your answer. Your answer is probably better than mine anyway. But like <laughs> the Bitcoin to me is two foundational changes. Like the internet was one foundational change, how we communicate via information over the world wide web. But Bitcoin brought in two changes that's hard for people to grapple with. One is a new type of global digital currency that was not backed by a nation state government is the first foundational change. And the second one is the blockchain, you know, having this distributed database that you're able to hold across the world that's able to keep track of, of this, you know, non-sovereign currency. And I think like what is happening right now is you're seeing the nation states react to that first foundational change, which is you now have this global non-sovereign currency, just maybe like gold or anything yeah. else, but it travels faster, it's over the internet and, and it has value in it. And how the countries like Russia are strategically either trying to align themselves with it or, and that's why I think you see them going back and forth on the policies, like what did China ban Bitcoin and then unban it like 15 times? Cause they're all grappling with what's the right geopolitical strategy. For Bitcoin. And I think that's what you're seeing when you see this, these types of actions by these countries. They're all trying to understand how it can benefit their, their country. 
so let's so let's talk about like what's happening right now. There was a uh, uh, the Biden executive order that a lot of people were looking forward to. To me, it seemed very vague, but I'm not. I'm not. I, you know, I I don't read these things on a regular basis to kind of read between the lines. But uh, what do you, what did you think about that? I mean, and what's next? Will there be a major federal move? Will it be states? Do you think? I mean, will the will the war between justice, the CFTC, and the SEC end? Like they're all de- trying to fight over who gets to regulate. Then you got the states have their departments of financial services. Just the other day, the mayor of New York was saying the bit license needs to go. It's stupid. It's overregulated. Like what? What's going? What? What's the next step here? Do we? Do things get brought back together nicely? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the an executive order can really pack a punch. You know, we were just talking about gold, right? Like 6102 was the executive order that told people you couldn't have hold gold anymore. So I, I was actually very nervous about that executive order coming out because I didn't know what they might say about what you can or can't do with Bitcoin. But it turned out to be a very light touch, like you said, very, I'm not sure, um, like, like just educational, right? Having all yeah. of these different reports pile up and, and focus over the next six months to really understand the space. One thing they said in the report is that they realized the U.S. should be at the center of any financial activity. So like what they're kind of saying is, look, if this is going to be the next Wall Street, we need to make sure the U.S. is going to be there. Yeah. So that I thought was really critical that they understand that part. What could happen now is, you know, we've heard a lot about different legislation that might go in about Bitcoin, and there really hasn't been much except that one crypto tax part of a oh, yeah. major Congress yeah, yeah. bill. But for a real bill, it's very hard for any bill to really become law. But if the White House got behind a certain policy and urged Congress to produce a bill, I think you could see a bill perhaps by as early as later this year or early next year, based on the research that they're doing right now. So it's really important to provide as much information as you can. For instance, a part of the executive order, the White House Office of Science Technology Policy has an open request for information on the amount of energy that's used by Bitcoin mining. So I suggest to everybody it's due by next Monday, but anyone can reply and give information about what you think about that. So they, maybe they've made some of their decisions huh. already, but right now they're, they're, they're gathering information. And that to me goes back to what you said earlier, Charlie, about why I love being here in the US because we could be in China and then suddenly we hear, oh yeah, you can't ban Bitcoin. You, you can't yeah. mine Bitcoin, sorry. But like in the US, we have at least a chance where the White House is asking us what our opinion is of Bitcoin mining, you know, not just assuming it either has to go. And that's what's great about this country is that that opportunity for speech, for speaking to our officials. We take that for granted sometimes, I think. I know I do. No, you're right. There's a there's a due process that does exist. And although I complain about it, it's better than the rest of the world. Uh, things like civil forfeiture need to go. Uh, but other than that, you know, the, the, there's certain states have the, an instant a federal government to like just take all of everyone's assets immediately. And then you have to prove your your innocence while all your money is frozen. That's something that people have been trying to get rid of for a long time. But something like that is what you need to prevent on Bitcoin and crypto is like that non-due process. And that let's that brings us right back to when I told you I was going to tell you my idea. And I like the idea of putting that due process on chain. And what I mean by that is I wouldn't be, you know, like I'm a big Bitcoiner and I want Bitcoin to never be touched by any governments. I want it to remain its own thing and do what it 
was intended to be to be the most sound money in the world, most decentralized sound money that's completely decentralized and distributed, and no one can reverse it, freeze it, take it from you, or tell you you can't spend. It's a beautiful thing. It's the closest we've ever gotten to what Bitcoin is the closest that we've ever gotten to a higher being in in my in my life, uh, my lifetime. But I wouldn't be opposed to putting a due process mechanism inside of the stablecoin. And what I mean by that is that you can build that into, you can build the ability that if you're holding your stable coins and local government says, hey, you're doing child pornography or something really bad, there should be a due process mechanism for actually freezing your money. And a lot of people will call me crazy right now, but you need to have the ability for law enforcement inside of a financial system but the problem is, is when it's not done in a transparent way. And if you do it on chain, it could be very transparent and really, really good. And all the embezzlement, graft, bribery, those pedophiles bribing the, the lawmakers, that all goes away. It all goes away instantly. Can that is that possible? Yeah, I think you're already starting to see that a little bit. Um, you know, Jared Kushner was asked for um, uh, sort of faced a ransomware situation and he was challenged and he went to the FBI about it during Trump's term because he was asked to turn over his father-in-law's tax returns. And um, what's nice about Bitcoin and when you see like the, the ransomware taxes, you're able to track, you know, where that went. Oh yeah. Uh, where that went. Um, so to me, it's the ultimate way of stopping politicians from, you know, doing things that are sleazy is it's the more it's on that on chain the more that due process is there. And what I think is great about what you're talking about is you're kind of giving just a little bit of a space. Like 50 years ago, 1970, 1975, when suddenly we decided the drugs were really bad in this country, um, all of a sudden, if you had the slightest trace of cocaine on a dollar bill, you know, a treasury agent could take your entire suitcase of money away from you and you'd never see it ever again. We're kind of seeing the same thing right now with Bitcoin, right? With the idea of did it pass through North Korea? Is it tainted? Maybe only good Bitcoin should come from the mining. What's good? What's bad? I think you'll see law enforcement evolve to a point where they kind of have now, where now we say that, you know, there's probably traces of cocaine on every single dollar bill. So not going to take it away from you, but it shouldn't just be taken away from you. Nothing in life should just be suddenly someone else is making a decision to take your million dollars. It needs to go to some kind of escrow or holding place in that scenario where at least you have the ability of it isn't just gone, you know, and there's no, no ability to retrieve it. And I think you could, pro, you could do the programmable money as, as we all often call it. That's, um, yeah, you can, you have programmable, programmable money, but that just reminds me, there's this kind of brewing little thing going on in, in the Bitcoin development community about Bitcoin improvement protocol one, one, nine. And it's not the improvement protocol that's making everyone nervous. It's, you know, CTV, which is uh, check time. I actually forgot what it stands for. It's like, I think it's check time verify. Um, buh, 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 buh. Check template verify. It's this new, mm -hmm. uh, it's this new uh, op code return in the Bitcoin code that's been talked about for over five years now. So the idea of like adding smart contracts to Bitcoin is not new or novel. And this, this, this upgrade would solve that and actually bring about the ability to on-chain color coins uh, 
and do like covenants. So, and a lot of people are nervous for doing something like covenants on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. Because what that means is you could send a transaction and say that after I send that transaction, that person who received the funds can only do this, 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 and this with it. So you start to like taint Bitcoins and unspent inputs and outputs. And I know I'm not as well-versed as I should be on this. I'm going to have someone on the show to talk about it, probably the author. But what makes me nervous is that this could secretly be something that the government is pushing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I was just in a sort of Twitter spaces the other day, and I heard Jeremy Rubin, the author, talking about 119. And, and I was listening very carefully, Charlie, because I'm thinking, first of all, how, how, does he, how does it get even to be that sort of, quote unquote, constitutional amendment? You know, what is it that we're actually able to consider something like this? But what I think the, the tainting is that there's, there's a bit of, we have to have some sense of confidence about what this network is and what it means, right? Because otherwise, it's just magic internet money. And I think what something's unfortunate that if you do have him on the show, I would love to understand his thinking behind, you know, there was a couple of years ago where CZ, um, the, the head of finance, he, he put out a tweet about that someone had stolen some Bitcoin. And this gentleman, Jeremy Rubens, put out a, a tweet to him saying, I know how you can get that Bitcoin back, like almost saying, I know how to reverse the transaction. And that's, that's, that feeds into what a lot of people say is one of the strongest elements of Bitcoin. And so I just think we have to be very careful when we introduce these types of changes. Maybe it's harmless, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's something that is, is trying to impact one of the core competencies of, of Bitcoin, which is why I think you have such a, a strong you know, BIP sort of review process, right? Where it doesn't just automatically happen. There has to be a lot of buy-in and, and maybe it shouldn't do go through a speedy trial, right? It should be, you know, well, this is deeper. this is brought a topic up to the conversation where you have two camps, multiple camps, but there are those who believe that if the Bitcoin network allows it, you should be able to do anything, right? That is the beauty of the Bitcoin network. Your inability to freeze or reverse someone's transaction is the same as if the network allows you to, you should be able to do it. It's like there, it's like a very fundamentalist point of view. It's like Satoshi's vision almost. And then you have the other side who say, well, if we introduce these morally questionable technologies into Bitcoin, we're introducing these things. So we need to like, it's a very complicated conversation. I'm actually excited to dive into it on the next episodes, but it's a very complicated conversation. And like you said, there's the, the technology that he wrote has been around for five years. It's just that the speedy trial and... And that's okay because his incentive, I heard, I don't know if it's true, is because he works for a company that would make financial gain from this change. And again, I don't want to say that without verifying it, but there's definitely, there's definitely, this was coming. There was going to be a big upgrade to the Bitcoin network that was coming to do things that other blockchains can do. And you're going to see this huge shift of people who want it to be just magic internet money and sound money and not do anything. And that's its utility. And then those who are going to say that we need to create abilities to do things with it. And I don't have the answer. I don't personally know where I stand yet. You know, um, Charlie, such a pioneer in the space, you know, I'd love your take kind of, because when you think about, 
what are we at the almost the 15 year mark for bitcoin is that right we're closing in on it's going to be a 15th anniversary I think, yeah right? um, so i mean if you think about if you just look at the facts of the matter 15 years later we have the price point around 38 whatever you know 40 who knows like you know oh my god bitcoin went down from 45,000 yeah. to 42,000 but it's it's kind of like at some point or another, if you were going to judge the success of something, you kind of have to say it's been successful. And I think another aspect of why Bitcoin has been successful and there's no sort of turning back is a conversation like you're having now, where there's this aspect of do we improve it? Do we not improve it? And it's a very deliberative process, which for me is exciting because it goes to the whole idea of my notion of why we need that constitutional amendment you know, for Bitcoin in our, in our, in, in our country, because that's where it's it strikes me as a very similar democratic process, but very deliberative with a very, you know, built on a very strong foundation. So Jason Brett, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on Untold Stories today. I really appreciate the time. And um how can how can my listeners get in touch with you? Do you do you work with do you work with governments directly? Do do can companies hire you guys to advocate on their behalf? I can get paid for teaching the government things. I want to do that for free. <laughs> yeah, you can. And so please reach out to me at jason at valuetechnology.org. Uh, um, and uh, you can um, just send me an email and I can tell you about the different projects. We're not publicly able to speak about them, but um, they're educational opportunities. You, you can do it for free. We often have people come in to do free lectures, but what we try to do is our mission is to help uh, what we describe as the U.S. and other free and open societies help develop this technology in ways that can benefit them, whether it's via supply chain, identity, other other things of that nature. And we typically talk to the, the heads of the government, along with the leading private sector implementers to help uh, spread that adoption. Thank you so much. That's that's really such an amazing thing. You're at the forefront, the soldier for that. And, um, you know, if you could go back to school right now and learn anything from the person who knows it the best. Like you could learn something from the Dalai Lama or you could be taught from Elon Musk or whoever you look up to is like just the most brilliant person in the world. What would you want to learn? What would you want to become like an expert in? I think uh, coding, there's no doubt. Like to have that coding aspect, um, it's no question. To to complement sort of the way I talk to people about the legislative and executive, because I know that would give me a little bit of a different point of view. And it's, not too late. Uh, my parents always said, and, you know, both rest in peace, but like, you can always go back to school and learn something new. Yeah. So it may still it's be not too that. late. I need to brush up on my Python. Like I remember <laughs> I'm so, I'm so bad. And I learned when I was a kid in like college and I wanted to, I should have become like, like an actual decent developer and worked for a company for a little bit because it's the language of the future. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time today and coming on untold stories. I appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie.